0: This is a podcast from the Rhodes Trust, which was recorded live at the 110th Rhodes Anniversary in Oxford. In this edition, David Ferreira, Nicholas Christoph, and Dr. Mark Zusman discuss fighting the world's fight against poverty.
1: We're going to start off with a bit of a <clears throat> conversation and then we're going to open it up to, to everybody and so uh, think of some good tough questions to put us all on the spot, to put them on the spot uh, and, um, and then we'll take it from there. Um, but uh, first of all, let me, um, let me just introduce, we'll each introduce ourselves. I'm Nicholas Kristof by uh, Maudlin, 1981 um, journalist. And I got interested in these issues uh, because of that wonderful Oxford vacation system. Since I was doing a, a, a BA, then um, you know the idea that you could study for eight weeks and then disappear off to, to Africa or India uh, for six weeks um, and then try to earn a little bit of money writing about it. Uh, I just found that you know, the idea you could actually get paid for this was extraordinary and um, so that really fed my interest in, in international development uh, issues. Um, I'm also I'm just in from the Syria-Jordan uh, border um, which makes one appreciate Oxford all the more. Um, Mark Sesman. Uh, Mark,
2: introduce yourself a little bit what, uh, how you got engaged in these issues. Great, so uh, Mark Sussman, uh, 1991, uh, Balliol. And uh, I actually started involved in these issues the same way as as Nick, as a journalist uh, working for a couple of papers, most uh, recently and for the longest stint with the Financial Times, covering a lot of issues in Africa, uh, and then in London, and then in Washington, and uh, jumped from there for what was supposed to be a temporary leave of absence to the UN. Uh, at the beginning of uh, the 2000s, which turned out to be a big turning point in global development, which I will talk about a bit today, in terms of as a real shift in, in sort of global trends and acceleration. I got caught the development bug um, about how, how do you really work and help uh, <coughs> developing countries, particularly focused on Africa, but, but globally, uh, really accelerate improvements for uh, health and, and human poverty. And so spent seven years at the UN and then from there uh, jumped to the Gates Foundation, where I currently am, uh, based in Seattle, but uh, working very deeply on, on all these issues with very much a focus on, on the world's poorest. So uh, that's the background, looking forward to a great discussion.
1: Mark has, you know, billions that he's trying to spend. So if you have any good ideas, um, I'd encourage you to call him at home, uh, call the sponsor, uh, offer him an idea. He really likes this kind of, uh, you know, reader feedback. <laughs> um, tell us just a little bit about... Our I mean, money all goes to David over there. <laughs> tell us a little bit about the the areas that the Gates Foundation is funding that you are
2: most excited about right
1: now that are potentially the, the biggest
2: breakthroughs? Yeah. So basically, the, the foundation's primary focus is really on uh, health and development issues, which we think can have the greatest catalytic impact on addressing global poverty. So on health, that's driven us focus very much on infectious diseases, which is the HIV, TB, malaria, Issues like that, vaccinations uh, more broadly, which David will talk to, and is is really the bread and butter of what Gavi does. And so, huge amount of work both into the R&D side, how do you develop cheaper, better, lower-cost vaccines, drugs, uh, other interventions, and then also delivery mechanisms around that. So, across the, the sort of health spectrum, that's the main area of focus. And then. Increasingly, and this happened sort of in the latter five years, uh, the foundation is now 13 years old, so it's, it's really only an adolescent. Uh, first five years was very health-focused and then widened out, looking at where are other areas that might be open to that same kind of catalytic set of interventions. And there, the most exciting area has been agriculture, which is really smallholder farmers, who are uh, 70% of the world's very poorest people are rural poor, and the vast majority of them are smallholder farmers, largely South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. And there, very small incremental increases in productivity, providing some tools, some access to credit, access to fertilizer, access to improved seeds that might grow better in drought-resistant conditions. Those are the kind of investments we've been making some very big investments in, huge uh, poverty alleviating impact, and very much self-sustaining when it works, because these are farmers who are then able, largely women, able to then sort of invest in their own farms, in their own children, send their kids to school. It's a very virtuous cycle. So. Uh, We've been spending a ton of of, uh, work and energy there. And maybe just one other area just to to sort of put out there because may generate some questions where we're very excited about the potential is is financial inclusion, which is really how you're getting financial services to the very poorest, where uh, that's one of the biggest gaps and handicaps. Many people are are aware of 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 microcredit and that whole revolution, but really the advent and the revolution of the mobile phone Is helping just drive down costs, increase access, open up a whole lot of opportunities that just simply weren't possible as recently as two or three years ago. So we're very excited about that area too.
1: David, um, tell us a little bit about your role at Gavi, what Gavi is, and and how you became engaged in this world.
0: So I'm David. Uh, I I came out to Magdalen in 1986. Gavi uh, stands for Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization. Uh, We're a public private partnership. Happy to speak more about that. And essentially, what we try and do is to make a significant contribution to leveling the global playing field by making available to kids in the poorest countries of the world um, the package of vaccines that kids in the richest countries of the world enjoy. Um, and we aim to do that on a sustainable basis so that it endures permanently. And very happy to talk about how we how we aim to do that. Um, My role um, at Gavi, I'm the (laughs) Managing Director for Innovative Finance um, and what that means is really two things essentially, on the one hand um, structuring uh, creatively so as to attract resources from um, a wide variety of sources. And on the other hand, um, structuring so as to deploy those resources in the most uh, effective and efficient manner possible so that um, we and the people who fund us get the biggest bang for their buck. So the rubric that we use um, to describe the work I do is more money for health and more health for the money. And I won't bore you with how I got well, here, but maybe he also writes on his <laughs> <laughs>
3: That's
0: right. At you least know, the first part. I mean,
1: one of the frustrations about people interested in global health is that so much money goes into rich world problems from drug companies, and so little into ailments of the developing world. I mean, if um, um, and Gavi is really kind of a remarkable and recent. Effort to address that. Can you just explain a little more about how how Gavi came about and what the,
0: what it has changed in the field? Sure. Um, so maybe just to take a step back and, and briefly ask the question of why immunization matters and and why global immunization matters um, and. Perhaps one way of getting into that is just looking at how child mortality, the number of kids on the planet who die under the age of five, has evolved over the last couple of decades. Um, And in a nutshell, it's been a dramatic reduction Um, And a lot of that reduction um, has been due to the globalization of immunization, unsurprisingly. So, um, you know, in 1990, there were 12 million kids uh, on the planet dying before the age of five. By 2000, that was 9.6 million. Uh, Now that's around 6.9 million, and obviously the denominator has changed because global population has grown significantly over that period. So as a percentage, the reduction is even more dramatic. And the greatest burden of child mortality is in the poorest countries of the world. We work in the 73 poorest countries of the world, um, 60% of the planet's birth cohort. And that's where most of the burden of infant mortality is. And you know, the sad reality is that much of that is preventable by you know, a cheap and effective technology. And there's, these are senseless deaths that, that shouldn't occur. But, in addition um, to, uh, to, to to saving a life and making sure that it, it, it you know the individual can continue to to live, I mean, much of immunisation is about quality of life is about morbidity, is about the absence of disease, is about the absence of physical and mental defects, and the ability to go to school, and the ability to retain information, um, the ability to uh, you know, not have your parents, particularly if you're in, in a poor environment, having to take time off, income-generating time to look after you. So it has a m- significant effect, um, ultimately, um, on, as I say, leveling the playing field and on socio socioeconomic uh, development. And, and that's why why immunisation matters, and why intuitively we all get our kids immunised. But that's why it matters from a global perspective. And, and 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 as I say, there's a big success story there, but a lot of challenges remaining, which maybe we can talk about later. In ter- directly, in terms of your question, uh, Nick. I mean, um, so as I said in in my brief intro, we we uh, you know the, the objective is to is to globalize something that, as you say, um, uh, where you're talking about products and interventions that have traditionally been manufactured essentially for the rich world, but also to do that on a sustainable basis. Um, And so um, in 2000, um, Gavi was established Bill Gates indeed was was one of the pioneers involved in that, uh, both from, from a, a thought process point of view, but also from a funding point of view. Um, and the idea was, was essentially to bring all of the players together um, in, under one roof in order, to, uh, in order to address the challenge. So if you look at our board of directors, it is massive. <laughs> we have 28 people on it. But it includes um, you know, uh, vaccine industry. It includes developing countries, health ministers, um, from Senegal, from Bangladesh, elsewhere. It includes uh, uh, rich countries that fund us. It includes the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the WHO, UNICEF, the World Bank, Research Institute, Civil Society. And it's a true public-private partnership. And the idea was to say, look at, Let's, first of all, focus on what happens in the vaccine industry. Um, and let's acknowledge that for many of the products that the vaccine industry, pharmaceutical industry brings to the market, in this case, vaccines, um, the essential business model is one of, in relative terms, low volume and high margins. So let's find a way. Um, but and, but the, the prices that that produces are just not affordable for most countries in the world. So let's find a way to bring prices down Um, in the countries that need those prices brought down um, but in a way that works for industry and makes it sustainable. And so, you know, in a nutshell, over time what we've worked with industry on is to create a pricing model that is tiered for different parts of the world and the the prices that the countries that we work in have access to are very, very dramatically different and we can talk about those compared to what say in the US we would pay on on the open market. But the corollary of that, the quid pro quo for that has been to say, look, we will give you great certainty of demand, forecast the demand. We will give you great financial certainty over the purchases that we will make. And we'll give you long-term commitments to purchase from you so that you de-risk, de-risk the market for them. That's kind of one component. The second component is working with countries to make sure that we fund and that we assist them Um, with partners to have the health systems, and in particular the immunization system, so clinics, cold chain, syringes, nurses, transport, to get vaccines out to where they they need to be gotten. Um, But then also the fiscal and political commitment to um, introducing immunization programs and taking over the full fiscal responsibility eventually. So every Gavi vaccine that we fund is co-financed by the developing country concerned that implements, which means that from day one, You have not only the health ministry, but also the treasury involved in the decision from a budgetary perspective, and often the legislature involved as well, because often these involve budgets that go through parliaments. And the deal is, uh, you know, at the beginning, you will co-finance a relatively modest proportion of the cost of vaccines. But as time goes by and as you grow, you co-finance an increasingly greater proportion until you get to a point. Currently, that point is 1,570 US dollars gross national income per capita. And that at that point, you graduate from a financing perspective out of the Gavi system, and you have 100% of the fiscal burden. And then obviously the final component, though, is that in order to make this happen and to to roll out vaccines rapidly over the world and to take our share of the financing uh, responsibility, we need quite a lot of donor money to make that happen. And so currently, we are spending around $1.6, $1.7 billion a year um, to acquire vaccines.
1: You mentioned the progress in um, in mortality, in child mortality, um, which is is truly extraordinary. And just to kind of make it, um, you know, kind of real, I'm curious. I bet a bunch of you have at one time or another had malaria. How many people have had malaria here? Good, good Oxford crowd. At, uh, <laughs> I, I hope you got on Oxford vacations, and and if you're studying international development, you should claim extra credit for getting malaria too. Um, the well, I mean, malaria, of course, is an area where there has already been tremendous progress in recent years, and um, I would have thought that it's plausible, partly because of, uh, of your work, partly because of work on vaccines, that uh, 15 or 20 years from now, uh, it may not be completely eradicated, but as a major public health problem around the world, it will, it will be. Is that, is that yeah. too optimistic?
2: Um. Probably, well, uh, the Gates Foundation were famous, or our co-chairs are famous for calling themselves Impatient Optimists, and a few years back they uh, called at a panel for the eradication of malaria rather than the control of malaria, which was a rather controversial call at the time because it is seen as such a sort of impossible dream given the scale and uh, just challenges around malaria globally. That said, it is in, since 2000s, malaria attributable deaths have dropped around 25%. That's a sort of 1.1 million odd deaths that would have happened on previous trajectories that didn't happen. The reason they didn't happen is better access to treatment, particularly better access to things like bed nets, uh, where there's been dramatic increases in distribution in the most endemic areas. Uh, but the fact is, there are challenges that so some of those gains have been at risk. You get mosquitoes learn new biting patterns. So instead of biting at night, they start biting at dusk before the bed nets are there. Uh, you get uh, greater resistance. There is a resistance to the different kinds of drug combinations, uh, which is growing, particularly in some areas in Southeast Asia now, and you need to try and accelerate uh, to get ahead of that. There's been a lot of work done searching, uh, and we put in a, a large amount of money as the foundation into looking for a vaccine. And, and there's been a new product, a recent trial results, uh, called RTSS, uh, which has had... Unfortunately, the, the results are sort of right on the cusp. They're encouraging enough that there is some level of prevention that you think maybe we should keep going, but they're not so encouraging that it's really a comprehensive uh, breakthrough in the way that, that many of the other uh, vaccines that, that uh, Dave and Gavi work on uh, work on issues like sort of pneumonia or rotavirus, which causes diarrhea. So, malaria is a really good example of both. You know, The optimism of the progress is very real, the momentum is real, the way in which governments are taking it seriously is real, and then the impact that those improvements have on society is much more than just health averted. The, the productivity costs of malaria in endemic countries are huge because it's days off work, it's days not being able to uh, be in the field for children, uh, it has a disproportionate impact on, on sort of health, ability to go to school, and so on. So, this is a huge impact. Um, the trajectories are positive, but the challenges are still very, very real. And uh, we hope that there will be a, a stronger vaccine candidate in the future. And we hope that there will be some other interventions. But it's, it's a constant race.
1: You're an impatient realist yeah. rather than an impatient optimist, maybe.
2: <laughs> well, an optimist in that you know, we, uh, the bottom line is things have been getting dramatically better across a very wide range. I mean, David just gave you those child mortality statistics, which are stunning when you think about them. I mean, that drop is just enormous. Uh, Many of you may be aware of these goals that were set at the UN in 2000, the Millennium Development Goals, which include a trajectory of reducing by 2 thirds child mortality from a baseline of 1990 to 2015, which is the coming deadline. And that seemed like an almost impossible number. And then to the extent that there had been progress, people were saying, well, it's it's just progress in China, very important though that is, and huge amounts of uh, impact. But actually, you have, as of the the most recent statistics that came out, that countries like Ethiopia, with 90 million people, has just met that target. Now, it's important to put it in perspective. Again, Ethiopia, I think it's around 1 in 15 children will still die before the age of five, as opposed to the norm in Europe would be somewhere around 1 in 200. So it's a dramatic difference. But that is down from 1 in 5 in 1990. And you look at the same kind of numbers on hunger, again, sticking with with Ethiopia, which is a country where we do a a great deal of work. uh, It's famous, almost notorious, for sort of famines and hunger. And it's true that depending on the statistics, and there's always a lag with statistics, but somewhere around maybe a little bit under two in five Ethiopians are still chronically hungry, undernourished, which is a terrible number, to, whereas it was two in three just uh, in 1990, and the population is much larger again now than it was in 1990, because there's been significant population growth. And you can look across all of these things, there's been improvements in education, in wider sets of healthcare, and a big chunk of it uh, is around the infectious diseases, because, as you say, there are big investments, you were saying up front, into if you like, the diseases of the rich, heart disease, uh, other things like that, which are very important and are increasingly becoming diseases of the poor and at least middle-income countries too. But when you look at the disease in the very poorest countries, it is still overwhelmingly the infectious diseases uh, that, that lead to that mortality. And that's where you know, the kind of investments we're putting in are. And the optimism comes from the fact that the trajectory is positive, And actually, again, the numbers even in many of the poorest countries in Eastern and Southern Africa the progress between 2005 and 2012 was faster than between 2000 and 2005 on those mortality reductions. So the acceleration is increasing. The aim is to keep that going. But again, to so the malaria uh, challenges, you know, we're realistic and optimistic if we can be both at the same time.
1: Let me um, ask you about failures of the humanitarian community. Because uh, one can learn as much from failures as, as from successes. Um, in the context of this extraordinary improvement in child mortality in particular, and improvements in morbidity and nutrition and so on, um, what do you think are the big mistakes the humanitarian community has made? And uh, let me toss out a few ideas of my own. I mean, I think that um, one is that until recently, everything kind of went much more on gut than on really solid metrics. I mean, the the, the business community was went Way, it was way ahead of the humanitarian world in really rigorous evaluation. Uh, I think that's changing. Um, a second is that I think the humanitarian world wasn't aware enough of insecurity and the way that uh, insecurity in one country can be contagious and spread through another. So in West Africa, you had problems in Liberia that caused the collapse of Sierra Leone as well, of Ivory Coast, uh, threatened Guinea, and so on. And in Rwanda, problems there you know, eventually went not only on to Burundi but but to um, the Congo itself um, and, and and so on i don't and in that context you can't when when you have warlords running around you know massacring clinics then you just can't do health interventions um, and finally, I guess I'd say that I think the humanitarian world hasn't been very good at at tooting its own horn um, there is this you know both NGOs, and, because they're always looking for money, and so they're talking about needs. And we as journalists, because we cover planes that crash, not planes that take off. So we focus on the needs and the failures. And I think that has left the world with this impression that Africa in particular is this kind of disaster area. And in fact, I do think that there's been this remarkable progress, and that we need to do a better job figuring out how to acknowledge the needs while also really emphasizing this extraordinary narrative of success that is in the backdrop. And your thoughts about failures.
0: So I think, first of all, just to, to go back to my own organization, to be fair, I mean, um, I'm not sure uh, failure is necessarily the word that I would choose. In fact, it's not the word I would choose, but um, I mean, you know i painted a picture up front of extraordinary progress and i think there has been uh, extraordinary progress um so some of that by the way is 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 quite difficult to intuitively imagine i mean for example we had a discussion you and i nick about africa and is africa different and the answer is no i mean if you look at the way that basic immunization rates have gone um in in africa Um, over the last decade, Um, it's been astonishing, and you can go onto our website and look at the coverage rate for diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, DTP3, which is a good measure of basic immunization, and is there a basic immunization system in place, Um, and you'd be astonished by the number of countries um, who are at what is now the average in, in our world, in the 73 poorest countries of the world, which is 80% so you know that's that's incredible and and um and and that's across asia latin america and africa where we where we work but the flip side of that very coin um, is that one in five kids is not getting even the most basic of vaccines Um, and that is a significant remaining challenge um, which speaks deeply to equity because very often you're finding those kids in the poorest parts, in the poorest communities, or in the geographically distant most, most distant communities, which sometimes overlaps. So there's big challenges there. Um, you know, we have massive challenges to confront on in, in the area of sustainability that I mentioned to you, which we grapple with. I said that you know, countries graduate out of our system, and indeed they are graduating out, but that doesn't magically mean that they continue and can continue these programs forever. We still have to grapple with the issues. If we're not supporting them financially, um, how is it that they have access to the right price point? How do they collaborate to to be able to provide a big market and pool their their procurement? Um, how do they forecast demand and and and, and operate together? Um, and you know, we have issues. i mentioned a last example, which is um, you know the. The global supply chain around vaccines: How does it get from a factory in Singapore to a kid in Mozambique in a distant part of Mozambique efficiently, so that there's no wastage along the line, so that we know exactly when vaccines are going to expire, and so that we don't, um, you know, so that so that we optimise both the lives saved as well as the dollars that we're employing. You know, that system is very imperfect when you compare it to a lot of what we observe in the private sector. So these are a lot of the challenges. Wouldn't, I wouldn't describe them as failures necessarily, but you know, really big challenges that remain in order to to get the job done. I agree with you um, that metrics, you know, introducing metrics um, is. Is, is critical uh, to know whether you've succeeded or failed what you failed at and, and what has worked well and then to build on that um, is, is, is absolutely critical and um, otherwise you're just lost at sea so there is controversy about the millennium development goals and the content of some of them and, and so on and so forth but i think the one thing i would strongly advocate for is just putting a marker in the sand and saying we can measure it and we can talk about the, the way that, that that mark was talking about child mortality earlier is very important And if you look at, um, you know, if you go and take a look at our website, you'll see that we set, we, we really do plant our flag. So we say, these are the strategic objectives that we are trying to achieve. This is, you know, these are the, 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 way, the way that we'll measure whether we're gonna get there. Um, and we will transparently uh, say to the world, how are we doing at any point in time? And so on something like, for example, what is the rate of immunization coverage on a particular vaccine compared to what we planned? And so we measure ourselves rigorously like that. And I think that is an increasing trend that you see. My own view, finally, um, is that um, when you look at development broadly speaking, um, I, you know, we—I think you, you spoke about humanitarian interventions. I forget the exact term, Nick. But when you think more broadly about the area of development and development interventions, I think that for various reasons, um, the, uh, the, the 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 sort of rich country community and the donor community and the development finance in, uh, institution community um, has. Neglected beyond um, uh, beyond lip service has neglected the real issue of country ownership and the and 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 the need for local communities, uh, you know, local governments to own programs if they're going to be sustainable over the long haul. And that has led, I think, to um, and and to some extent that that's a function of incentives in the communities that I've mentioned in the resource-rich communities. But that has led to. You know, I think an unconscionable amount of kind of white elephants, um, and you know, ports and power stations and roads and 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 things like that that um, that probably. Shouldn't have been built, or, or if they were built, should have been built in a in a different way, with more of a view as to you know how they fit in the big picture and how they would be sustained. So I think uh, country ownership and sustainability is a big theme.
1: Mark, the I mean, this is a battle, and in a sense, we're we're losing the public relations effort, anyway. That um, you know, especially at a time of economic difficulties around the world, um, I think there are an awful lot of people who think, why worry about vaccines or malaria in malawi let's solve let's fix our own problems at home first and um there i i was struck by a pew survey in the u.s earlier this year in that asked uh voters about i think it was 23 different areas of the budget and the one area the democrats and republicans agreed should be uh, slashed was humanitarian assistance Mm -hmm. um and I um, I think that in a difficult budget environment, it is going to be. I think that 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 argument carries tremendous re- resonance. That, you know, let's let's fix our own problems first. So, obviously, the Gates Foundation, you do work on schools within the U.S., but you're focused on global health. So, how do you answer those
2: people who make that argument? Yeah. So, it, it, first of all, you're right. It is a huge challenge. It's a challenge that's only got tougher, and this is persuading countries in the rich world, the developed world, to continue, fund, and support uh, overseas development systems, international aid. And the irony is this feeling and perception has absolutely grown in the re- uh, post-recession the in 2000 at exactly the time the aid industry is arguably having its greatest impact ever because it has very belatedly learned a lot of these lessons. It's much better about metrics. It's much better about evaluations. It's much better at... Uh, working directly with countries and trying to build the sustainable country ownership that that David was talking about. That's not at all to say it does it well or optimally. There are huge gaps and huge mistakes and it's learning all the time because these are incredibly complex issues. But it definitely is more impactfully spent and you're getting more lives saved, more kids educated for the international aid, dollar or euro or pound than any time uh, in modern history. But traditionally, aid is also seen as a political tool. You know, really, until 90, part of the reason you didn't have those very rigorous evaluations and so on was really up till 1990, in the end of the Cold War, aid was primarily a Cold War political tool. There was you know, lip service about anti-poverty agendas and so on. But if you actually look where the resources went, and whether, you know, many decades of uh, uh, money going to Mobutu in, in uh, then Zaire and now Congo, those kind of things, really helped give aid a bad name and still have the stereotype that, oh, well, aid will just go into a country here and then back out to a Swiss bank account there, which is really not the case for the large majority of aid. It's certainly not the case for the kind of uh, work that Gavi does or the Global Fund Against HIV, TB and Malaria and lots of that work. and so. Part of what we try to do with the Foundation and, and Bill and Melinda Gates are personally very passionate about is uh, just trying to tell that story and say, here is the impact. You know, Bill Gates um, you know, puts a very high premium on value for money and investments. He does not put money into areas he does not think are high return. And he thinks and believes, and we think we have the numbers, that some of these investments in human health and poverty alleviation are the best and highest return investments it's possible to make. But it's a very difficult case to make, not just because of the perceptions, but also because it's widely misunderstood how much money is actually goes to aid. Um, Those same polls that say it should be cut, most people in their routine surveys, which are very consistent over the decade, think that around 10% of the US federal budget uh, goes on aid. And the actual number is uh, just under 1%. And only half of that on humanitarian, and a half of that on humanitarian. It, and yes, yeah, so a lot of that goes to you know it, aid covers a, a wide range of of sort of issues and expenditures. In the UK right now, um, it's actually a very interesting story where the, the David Cameron's government has been phenomenally good on this issue. They've made it a signature uh, part of their uh, sort of commitments uh, to bring. British uh, aid spending up to an internationally agreed commitment, which um, uh, historically only the Nordic countries—Norway, Sweden, and and Denmark—had reached of 0.7% of GDP spent on international aid, be getting massive blowback. All you have to do is pick up the Daily Mail while you're here, or a couple others that just say why this is so shocking and terrible. And of course, it's okay. to spend on humanitarian, you know, if people are starving, we, the British people, will absolutely respond from the goodness of our heart, and you get those same responses in the US or, or other countries. But that we don't want this aid going money down a rat hole. Everything to take Jesse Helms' old uh, comment, and it is a challenge because it, going back to your original question, it, some of the stereotypes of development, the things that have exacerbated, particularly the image of whether it's Africa or the Haiti disaster, whatever it is. That general public still do respond uh, pretty powerfully to humanitarian appeals when you did have the Haiti earthquake there's a tremendous uh, response from the American public around it and so that's still what generates uh, people willing to put uh, their hand in their uh, their wallet and give money directly or say we can have some taxpayer money but then, the actual development taking place, what we were talking about, those child mortality uh, statistics, but writ large across a range of development indicators, are what helps build the resilience within these societies that they're not going to need aid in the future. And that's the issue that's not fully understood. It's a difficult story to tell, but it's like the narrative I was talking earlier around agriculture and how it can become self-sustaining, and generate its own momentum. And that is exactly what's happening in large chunks of the developing world. And it's really important that that money not dry up now. But it's a, it's a tough uphill fight, no question.
1: Can, um, you know, I'm sure that a lot of you folks are writing checks at the end of the year, kind of wondering whether it's effective or not. I wonder if you, know, you guys are in the business of giving away money or spending it. What guidance do you have for um, any of us um, I guess after we've written our check-to-the-roads trust, maybe, um, um, about, I mean, I'm not so much asking for a particular organization to give to, or even a particular cause, but what mistakes do people make that kind of d- that, that just drive you up the wall, or what should we be thinking about when we're making our own charitable donations?
2: Yeah. Well, You know, the the way we operate, obviously, is as a grant, a large-scale grant-giver to organisations that both do some of the research work, but uh, some of that delivery work. What you're looking for, again, is just sort of general transparency in the company. Are they very open about where the resources are going? Uh, Are there metrics of the measurability uh, of impact? How are they assessing it? What are the ratios of, of sort of overhead costs versus implementation costs. So there's some very good tools out there that, that help look and assess that. Um, again, increasingly, what we're interested in, and it's, it's a very challenging. I mean, when we go back to evaluation, we do this as a grantor all the time. And, and actually, we, we get a, num- a lot of grief from some of our grantees, uh, of course, not, not Garvey, but about <laughs> that we're sometimes Overly rigorous, and our grants process can going to be incredibly painful because we 're trying to map out what are the milestones in year one or year two or year three that we think would be satisfactory outcomes for the return of dollar to help trigger subsequent year payments and It is complex and, and cumbersome because it 's not a sort of simple equation you put money in, you get these human outcomes out mm-hmm. the other end. And we're always learning, and we're always seeking to recalibrate it. But really, what you're trying to get is organisations that are, you know, honest about the challenges, open. You can see it in their annual reports and their websites, and in some of the other uh, issues, uh, and and are constantly trying to learn. It's uh, and in terms of what the issues are, I think everyone has particular issues they're they're passionate about, as as you say. I'm sure while we're here, the Rhodes Trust and the the Mandela Rhodes Foundation would. Both be uh, good sources, but there, there are many, many others. Yeah, I think it's it's. Yeah, I think that's right. It's
0: entirely dependent. I think Nick on your on your motivation, and you know, I think there's a there's a always a place for just looking after your neighbour. And when you talk about the humanitarian relief or disaster relief uh, type of, of situations, I think that's what applies there. But equally, you may be interested in a school in your own backyard or a clinic in your own backyard. Um, you know. What what we uh, wrestle with, you know, and, and, and one of the things, particularly from my perch at Gavi, that I'm most interested in is how to make different sources of capital that are often at different scale, with different motivations, um, and that come associated with different skills sing together in harmony um, so that, um, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And so we have. Indi- although you know as I said I mean we're, we're operating at the scale of, of, of billions we have individual donors um, sometimes we give relatively modest amounts um, we have corporate donors we have um, you know JP Morgan Vodafone anglo-american um, and you know in those cases, what we are trying to find is an alignment of interest and an, and an alignment of, of motivations and you know trying to make sure that someone who comes in and says, "But you know what difference can I make? what difference can I, my dollar make?" is to really make the case and it, it depends on what your motivation is. So first of all, if you just want to see your money well spent and you want to be clear that you'll get transparent reporting on what it went into and want to be sure that each dollar had the impact that was intended that's a motivation that would that would suit us. But on the other hand, if you want to uh, do something where your motivation is, for example, catalytic, I want to get involved in funding something that you guys are interested in, which may seem a little risky or out there, but if it comes off, um, then it is something that I can look to you guys to take to scale, to take to a number of communities, a number of countries and so on, and then ultimately I will have been part of something much bigger. Um, then again, you know, we're, we're trying to find the way, the, the way to do that. But you know, at the end of the day, I think if you if you're making the background assumption that you want to that you want your money to have an impact, um, and that you want your uh, and, and you want that to be proven in some way, then I think what Mark's saying is is quite right. I mean, the more transparency, the better. Uh, and certainly, I know at Gavi, I mean, anyone who's gone on our website can see we're transparent to a fault. I think we just throw everything up there. Um, and the more that you measure yourself, uh, the better uh, for everybody, ultimately. And so, and so we're very committed to that. And actually, you know, in all honesty, we have you know, zero frustration, as, as Mark knows, with the idea of the Gates Foundation being one of those funders who's very exacting and, and, and pushes us, because we're right there with them, wanting to do exactly the same thing for, uh, for the same reason.
1: My advice partly would be don't spread yourselves too thin. I mean, I think people often, you know, they get a heart-rending letter and send in a small check. You know, they do that often. And I just think that ends up being very inefficient for that organization. Your money is much better off going to, uh, in bigger checks, to fewer organizations um, as a matter of efficiency. And I think another bit of advice would be, I think people often get assessed by uh, charity navigator ratings. And those can be useful uh, guides. But administrative expenses aren't, I mean, the amount spent, what, what matters is impact, not necessarily yeah. the uh, administrative expenses. And it's, you know, it, it's a complex issue, um, but uh, look for impact. Um, and, and there are some other um, guides, things like givewell.org, that kind of that try to assess impact rather than just uh, the question of administrative uh, expenses.
2: Well, I mean, one point which is actually an interesting one which we confront a lot is the tension between uh, the challenge, and we certainly, with with our grant, are always challenging our partners and organizations to look at new approaches, to take risky bets, to try something different that's going to have bigger impact. And the consequence of that is a number of our bets will fail or won't work or won't have that degree of impact. Mm -hmm. But that's very challenging, especially for non-profit organizations, but also equally for for for-profit ones that we partner with. Because you don't you want to be demonstrating that every dollar that came in had an amazing impact and uh, you know so it is a challenge and it's something to be aware of and it's uh, admittedly he was giving it a scale that that uh, pretty well no one else on the planet can contemplate but it was very striking when Warren Buffett uh, made the initial announcement that he would give the bulk of his fortune to the Gates Foundation, which which he does. He, he gives a, a certain proportion of, of Berkshire Hathaway stock every year, which we're expected to spend during that calendar year, and he will keep doing that. Um, and he came into the foundation for this initial news breathtaking. Wow, you've, you've given your money to somebody else's foundation. He's also uh, helped endow his children's foundation, but the bulk is coming to, to the Gates Foundation. And I remember uh, a colleague sort of asking question, say, "Well, saying, you know, well, Mr. Buffett, you're famous as the world's best investor. Uh, you know, what are the lessons you've got from your investment process that, that we should be applying to our work at the foundation? And he looked at me and said, you really shouldn't be said, because when I make an investment, it's a very, very sure bet. I've done my due diligence. I feel very confident and very comfortable about the impact of my investment, and that's what I do. But for philanthropy and the money that I'm giving you, you're dealing with nutty, uh, thorny problems, which are very, very difficult and using a base if you're not swinging and missing two thirds of the time, you're not, you're not trying hard enough. If I wanted just high impact and return, I would build the world's best park outside my house. And I know I could make that meticulous. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for you guys to grapple with these really tough issues. And I'm very comfortable with failure because I hope that will breed success. And that is a tension that, that definitely runs through the industry.
1: I'd like to um, open it up to other people for, Questions, uh, comments? Way in the back.
3: Uh, Tim Reed 1960, it's a more general question. Um, I mean, it's so desirable what we are hearing in terms of the vaccinations of, of, of children. Uh, and so, my, I hope my comment isn't, isn't uh, brutal in any sense. That means an increase in population. Uh, and that, in itself is an effect of doing something very worthwhile, saving lives.
1: But children. does it run into the Malthusian problem that then it becomes, yeah.
3: Yeah. I, mean, it's, and I And I guess my answer to that is if the parents, I lived in India for a while, and you know some of the villages, parents um, want to have a lot of children to help with the work in the field. If their perception is, i still going to have the same number of children as I had, before, even though three of my five children are still alive at 10, then that is a very difficult mathematical equation to work out. And so my question is, um, can you, or would you, or is it within your horizon to tie what you are doing into birth control for the women?
2: Well, uh, yeah, very straightforward answer is, uh, yes, and in fact, family planning is one of, and I, I should have mentioned up front one of the biggest areas of focus uh, for the foundation and a particular passion of, of melinda gates 's and in fact, the, the whole area of family planning is an interesting one because uh, it 's one that got relatively neglected uh, globally uh, from around the mid 80s paradoxically almost a victim of success of some of the big conferences uh, the, the cairo conference and the beijing women 's conference and, and some of the and it got Very politicized, um, the whole issue of family planning reproductive health, certainly in the United States, is a thorny political issue. It cuts across uh, personal religious issues. And uh, the same kind of thing we were talking about drugs. There was a real drying up of investments in new types of family planning products that might be accessible uh, or affordable uh, for many of the world's poorest. And the interesting thing on family planning is with the demand, uh, exactly what you're talking about, this is a combination of... Um as children survive and as families see their children more likely to survive, they do start to have fewer children. There's no question there's a lag, but this has happened. Uh, you know, There's very strong demographic evidence across a, a very wide range of societies that as that visibility happens, the number of, of children uh, families have goes way down. The investments they are able to put in the surviving children go way up. What you do have is, that it is a kind of demographic bulge, because as you're getting those improvements in child mortality, there's still a time lag effect. You need to have enough families seeing that impact around them, understanding that your children are likely to survive. And done right, what that can trigger is then a demographic dividend in the phrase that you, what you have is a cohort coming through, a uh, larger, which if it's done at a time and in societies that are starting to generate the kind of economic growth and opportunities that uh, you know, we're certainly a lot of, of Southeast Asia and, and East Asia went through exactly that uh, process in the 50s and 60s, and some countries like Indonesia and others a little later in the 80s and 90s, we're starting to see some of that in Africa. Uh, but there are wide divergences. There's, there's no question in a country like Niger, where I think it's still an uh, average of around seven children or six children, so it's come down a bit, but it's still very high but uh, where I think it's the highest in the world, is, you know, that is a real challenge. But absolutely, the combination of family planning and accessibility to family planning, because there is huge unmet demand, and particularly among women, because it is key to get that, both the, the education and the access for the women, uh, then you do start seeing those positive effects and you, you want to do both at the same time. I
1: would just add that, I mean, I think there's a perception that family planning is about, you know, is about condoms or IUDs or uh, injectables, this kind of thing. And obviously you need those commodities, but educating girls has a huge impact on on fertility rates. And um, it um, it may well be that you get I mean, there's some debate about this, but it may well be that you get more bang for the buck on the total fertility rate through girls' education than you do through um, family planning uh, programs. It's, I mean, you you obviously need both to some degree, but, um, um, yes.
3: You all talked about the importance of working with the governments in these various countries. Uh, It's important that they buy in and eventually graduate. But many of the countries you're talking about, uh, perhaps dictatorships or semi-dictatorships, or plagued by great political instability. Uh, there's ample evidence of that. So how, in the face of political instability, corruption, perhaps, do you deal with these governments, get them to buy in, ensure that the funds and the programs you administer uh, are done in the right way?
0: Right. Good question. So first of all, yeah, I mean, we work across all countries. I mean, we're you know beyond the issues even that, that you raise. Um, you know, we're in the North Koreas of the world. We're in the Cubas of the world. We will work anywhere that is that fits in the income category that I mentioned to you. Um, and certainly, we deal with uh, political instability. Uh, we're in Somalia in the Sudan's um, in the DRC, um, uh, and and you know lack of reach of the state apparatus. Um, DRC would be an example of that also. Um, so then um, you know, we have to be pragmatic and improvise. So f- our view is that the first stop for better or for worse is, is always the government health system. Um, sometimes that is a, a national health system, and sometimes that's a, s- a state or provincial level health system. But that is really where we start. And if we think about most of, the, most of the countries where you have a health system that really provides equitably and fairly, in Europe, for example, to most of its populations, that's really the, the fundamental model. And so, um, so that, that is our starting point. But, um, but we do acknowledge that there are many places where, for the reasons you mentioned and others, um, that doesn't go all the way. And so then we, we, we team up with others. Um, in the case of refugee camps, we will team up with you know, international relief organizations. Um, in many countries, uh, we will team up uh, with local, or international, non-governmental organizations, um, not just on things like getting the word out, but on actual implementation. So for example, in countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo in Zambia, we work with local church groups who will actually run clinics and, and run immunization programs. Typically, we negotiate to integrate that into what the government does, so negotiate for an acknowledgement by the government that it's run out of steam in many regions of DRC, for example. And so we need to make these alliances and make the whole system function together, but that they won't be able to provide uh, the solution. Um, On um, corruption, um, I mean, so... Uh, I suppose we're in the, we're in the fortunate uh, situation. By the way, um, on your overhead question, I, I agree with you entirely. I mean, we, for better or for worse, make a virtue of the fact that our overhead is, is, uh, is, is particularly low. It's around 37 or 3.8%. So the bulk of our money, <clears throat> say 95%, out of that 85%, we, 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 we spend on procuring vaccines, the commodity, which has to be refrigerated. And, and it's the commodity that we then ship to the country and then work with UNICEF and with, with local partners, including the government, to get it around the country in a refrigerated environment. And it's not something that has a street value. Uh, so, and it's provided free of charge to the, to, to the end user. So we're fortunate that for most of what we do, um, there's, relatively <coughs> speaking, a, a, a low risk. Now, so that's 85% of what we spend a year. 10% of what we spend a year is cash. And that cash gets dispersed to national governments, to local governments, to non-governmental organizations, uh, to others, uh, relief agencies. And very often, that is, for, that is predominantly for the immunization services that I spoke about up front, for clinics, for training of nurses, for syringes, that type of thing. Um, and um, so. it's a a relatively small proportion of what we spend, but it's still, you know, significant number of of money in the aggregate. Um, We try and be, you know, work work with partners in the international development community and locally and elsewhere to ensure that the controls are baked in to the way that we disperse and monitor funds to make sure that those those funds are responsibly used. Um, And by and large, that is successful. But from time to time, some of that money is um, either innocently, actually, or not so in- innocently misused. Um, innocently is, you know, I thought this was a, uh, was a medical expenditure that qualified, and it just doesn't happen to. Not so innocently is other stuff. And then we go after it. Uh, we will, and then at that point, we will, st- we will not disperse any more cash into that country. Um, we will um, we will continue to fund to, to, to ship vaccines, but we'll not disperse any more cash until the money has been repaid um, and until we fix the problem that was underlying it. And what's more, we do all of this transparently. Okay. So again, if you go to our website, we come out at the earliest possible moment. We tell you exactly what's going on in which country and what we're doing about it. Um, and we just, we shine a bright light on it.
2: Yeah, I mean, maybe just a point to add to that. I think vaccines is one of the areas that you know, can actually operate even in war zone refugee camps, and also the, the, you know often you do use and, and Gavi and others partner with uh, NGOs with uh, UNICEF does a great deal If, if the systems aren 't working, there are alternative models they 're not as sustainable obviously the the long term vision of success is a stronger and more robust primary healthcare system, which tends to be very difficult to build. Uh, in, in sort of our general work as the foundation and the foundation's directors, or when we give to an organisation like Gavi or the Global Fund, they operate multilaterally in the way that David talks about. When we give directly or, or we work with organisations, what about we tend almost by default and now increasingly by design to go into places where there is political space and opening, because that's where you get the momentum. You know, we're not really a foundation based in Seattle, isn't in a position to sort of kick doors open or do things differently, but. Uh, When there is, and to Nick's original uh, question around humanitarian uh, issues, it's true so much of it is about political will and and political commitment. And so if you take an example of uh, the state of Bihar in India, which is the poorest state in India, 90 million people with uh, demographics and indicators that are actually worse than, than Ethiopia's, uh, there, they had a long track record of dismal development failures. And then, uh, about five years ago, a new chief minister, Nitish Kumar, was. Uh, it had always been a very sort of ethnic, uh, politicized, sort of fairly corrupt system. And he came in as a technocrat saying, I want to come in and really try and transform some of these things and was looking around for partners, came to us and said, would we be willing to be, uh, develop a partnership, uh, which we then have a range of other half a dozen partners on the ground, to start transforming, uh, working to try and transform some of these things at scale. And the results have been very impressive. Again, off an incredibly low base, uh, he actually just got re-elected, uh, which shows that technocratic success among the very poor can buy you votes, which is a good revelation in, in India uh, and a very positive one uh, at state level. And so I think that part of the thing and the success stories that we've talked about, you know, the countries like Tanzania or, or Ethiopia, when I was talking about the agriculture work, these are governments that have been willing to make the investments, put the resources, and then are very open to that. It doesn't mean some things might not go wrong, and we do try to monitor very closely, but it does require that that sort of open door and willingness from the governmental partner in the first place.
1: I am afraid that we are out of time. I hmm. was actually uh, deceived a little bit by that clock, uh, and then all of a sudden my watch beeped at me to say it's 5. Um, but uh, So I'm sorry about that. Um, I'd uh, like to uh, present uh, Mark and David with uh, notebooks from the Rhodes Trust <laughs> <you>. uh, to <laughs> John
0: This podcast was recorded live on Wednesday the 18th of September in the Medical Sciences Teaching Centre. The speakers were David Ferreira, South Africa at Large and Magdalen, 1986, Nicholas Christoph, Oregon and Magdalen, 1981, and Dr Mark Suzman, Natal and Balliol, 1991. To find out more, visit www.roadshouse.ox.ac.uk.